0: This is your host, Leticia Wiggins, and welcome to History Talk, smart conversations about today's most interesting topics.
1: And this is Patrick Potyandi, your other host. Twenty-five years ago this autumn, the world watched in amazement events in Eastern Europe transformed the planet. After more than four decades, the Soviet-controlled communist bloc of Eastern European countries suddenly collapsed. A host of countries threw off the reins of one political system and grasped a new one. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, just to name a few.
0: In 1989, socialist states that had looked a permanent fixture on the map of Europe disintegrated, often with little resistance. And the Berlin Wall, that most iconic symbol of the Cold War, came tumbling down in November. The worldwide surprise generated a scramble to try and reshape this epic reorganization. The sense of possibility and astonishment was palpable. The world could change in the blink of an eye if only we tried.
1: But where are we now, 25 years later? What has become of those hopes and aspirations? Why have some parts of the region moved forward peacefully and seemingly seamlessly, while others collapsed into paroxysms of violence and instability? Why are the events of this year important to remember? All in all, why should 1989 matter to
2: us now?
0: Today we'll talk to three guests about these and other questions as we remember the year that changed it all, 1989.
2: I'm Angela Brutlinger from the Slavic Department here at Ohio
3: State. My name is Theodora Dragostinova. I am a native of Bulgaria, and I teach Eastern European history at The Ohio State University.
4: Hi, I'm Nick Breifogel. I'm uh, one of the editors of uh, the magazine Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective, uh, and I'm also a professor of history at Ohio State.
1: All right, well, thanks uh, to all three of you for joining us today on History Talk. Um, and we want to start our uh, questions off on a personal note today, so we wanted to give you each the chance to recall your memories of the events of 1989.
2: My perspective is from the Soviet aspect. That's where I was. Uh, and I have three words, uh, two words from 1987, which was my first time in the Soviet Union, uh, where we were reading Mikhail Gorbachev's new book, Novoye Myshlenie, New Thinking. So those are the first two words. It was about new thinking. It seemed like the Soviet Union was changing in that direction. Uh, in good directions, in interesting directions, but Gorbachev thought in communist directions. Uh, the the third word I'll just share briefly uh, from 1989 when I was living in Moscow uh, was deficit. Everything was missing. There was a deficit of consumer goods and we didn't see November 1989 coming, but it did look like things were going wrong in the Soviet system.
3: For me, 1989
2: is a very personal experience.
3: I was a junior in high school and I actually distinctly remember the day after school when we heard on the radio that the Bulgarian communist dictator had resigned. We knew that was a big deal because that had happened actually the day after the Berlin Wall fell. So it was a clear political change and uh, that made many of us very hopeful. I went to school in a Special school for gifted children. Uh, And um, many of my friends were hugely talented people who uh, were very optimistic, very enthusiastic about the change. They thought that would bring good things to them and to their families. So they embraced the change. And I remember that for the last two years in high school, our teachers were just. Let us go. Tell us, go to the squares, go chant, go demonstrate, go participate in the rallies. So it was a very, really formative moment for me. Um, I mean, one, when you are 17, 18, you are full of hope, you are full of optimism. Uh, you want to do your best. And uh, this coincided with this momentous historical change. So it was a very important moment for me personally.
4: It's funny because for me, uh, it was also a very important moment personally, but from a completely different vantage. wasn't in Bulgaria. wasn't in a special school. uh, But I was uh, finishing up university, heading off to to grad school uh, to study kind of Russian and Eastern European history. This is a place that I had traveled to uh, already several times. And I thought I had been studying, in some ways, you know, the enemy. I wanted to know a little bit about these people who uh, were standing uh, against us, that were part of this, uh, you know, on the other, on the wrong side, ultimately, in, uh, in our view at that point of the, uh, uh, of this great global divide. And, uh, and to watch the events of 89 was, for me, a kind of transformative moment where my sort of sense of... How the world worked, uh, the possibilities for humans completely changed in front of me in the sense that, I mean, as Leticia said at the beginning, had the sense that things could change literally in the blink of an eye and suddenly everything that had seemed permanent no longer was. And the astonishment, the wonder, the possibility, the sense that the the future could be better, uh, the sense that people could, in fact take to the streets and the squares, change their lives, throw off a system of government that they didn't want, embrace new forms of, uh, of, uh, of economic practice, that everything's suddenly possible. And that sense of optimism, which I didn't always have, uh, has really stayed with me ever since, uh, that that event was very formative in terms of how I think about what is possible uh, in, uh, in the world. So it was an amazingly amazing moment. Amazing.
0: And and building upon these wonderful recollections you've all shared, let's set some groundwork here. And what happened in 1989 that was so important? In other words, what makes 1989 so important a year in European and global history? And Theodora, if we want to throw this to you first. So
3: 1989 showed the power of peaceful protest. And if you wish, the power of the crowd the historical agency of the crowd, the ability of people to basically guide their own destinies and to determine their own futures. So, I mean, it was a hugely optimistic moment. And that is very important. We need to remember that optimistic moment. However, 1989 also showed the power or the, the sort of the ambiguity of unintended consequences, which as historians, we always have to remember because after the optimism of these early months, Much of the region was thrown into conflict. For some countries, 1989 brought success, brought new lives that ultimately made um, their countries better. I mean, relatively speaking. For others, not so much. Uh, uh, And I guess if I have to point to the sort of like two poster children of success and, well, ultimate, I mean, failure... Of the project. I mean, I would point perhaps to the Czech Republic, which has embraced the change so well, and to Yugoslavia, which disappeared as a result of these momentous changes. So, what ultimately happened is that we have different dynamics in different parts of the Eastern Bloc, and we really cannot treat the Bloc as a Bloc anymore. We have to pay attention to what happened in with each individual country.
2: Well, and I really want to focus on the former Soviet republics because their fates show what I experienced was not necessarily optimism, experiencing 1989 from the inside. Um, I remember that uh, I was in Tbilisi in November for the holiday, the anniversary of the Bolshevik revolution in 1988. And we were pulled out. Um, in fears that there would be demonstrations. And indeed, April 9th, 1989, there were serious demonstrations on formerly Lenin Square, now Freedom Square, Um, and there were people who were dying uh, not during peaceful demonstrations. It was the failure of the peaceful demonstration in many ways. And I guess I see a much more pessimistic side to uh, to those changes. Uh, In many parts of the former Eastern Bloc, those possibilities didn't happen. In Belarus, in a lot of other places
4: you know i 'm glad you asked this question because I think it 's really an, an important i mean there 's lots of anniversaries that happen and and some we pay attention to and some we don 't but it seems to me this is one that we should pay an enormous amount of uh, importance to and i think in some ways for two reasons the first is is because this is an event that really uh, speaks to sheds lights on helps us to understand a whole series of really important questions that that were with us then and are with us again uh, today. So questions like, you know, h- how do you bring about a political transition? Uh, how do you change from one political system to another? I mean, you know, after our experience, uh, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan or all these other places in the world, you know, this is a question that we're still grappling with. And and the the, the example of what happens in uh, in Eastern Europe, with its good and its bad, is is a really helpful one for us to think about the ways in which, you know, political changes. Uh, occur or uh, or, don't, uh, or don't occur. Um, you know, as Theodore pointed out, we see you know, the importance of uh, of crowds and the possibility of people to make change. On the flip side, though, it also reminds us of, of of how important it is that the authorities don't shoot. And one of the big questions we have to think about is when is it that the authorities decide to shoot? And when is it that they decide not to? When is it that they accept that in some ways the game is done and that they need to make some kind of compromises? And when is it that they try to fight back? And the fact that uh, that in 1989, for the most part, with the exception really of Romania, uh, the powers that be did not fight back, whether it was the the Soviet kind of rulers uh, or uh, or any of the kind of local authorities, uh, it strikes me as really uh, as, as really important. It, it speaks to the big question of how you make how you make the transition, um, and uh, and particularly how you make the transition without violence. Uh, and what causes violence, and these sort of big questions. So why does uh, Yugoslavia uh, break up into this, this horrifying uh, waves of violence while places like Czechoslovakia are able to split and what they call the velvet divorce? So these large questions are really important. I think 1989 really helps us to think about those questions in, uh, in, in important ways. I think it's also important uh, for us to pay attention to this, uh, this anniversary because of what it, meant, uh, what it meant and what it means uh, for Europe, uh, in the sense that, uh, Europe had for decades existed in this kind of split format. Uh, and since 1989, we've, see a, we've seen a fundamental restructuring, and redefinition of what Europe is uh, and how it interacts uh, within itself or among itself and how it interacts with the rest of the world. Uh, and because Europe is so important uh, on a global stage you know, we need to understand 89 to understand Europe to help us make sense of what's going on today.
1: Um, And we'd really like to kind of push you all a little further here to explore what's happened since 1989 that we've been really touching on already. Um, And so have those great expectations that much of the world had, have those changes of 1989 been attained, in your opinion? And maybe if there's any kind of specific examples you can bring up here, um, feel free to do so. So
3: 1989 made it clear that political change is important. However, it also became clear almost immediately that politics is not everything, that even though we have political transformations, that may not be the most important thing for people, for the people, for everyday people on the ground. So I started on an optimistic note telling you about my experience going to the demonstrations and feeling the enthusiasm of political change for much of my junior year in high school. By my senior year in high school, the shock therapy policies had settled in. And what I remember is long lines waiting to stock on basic goods. What I remember that I was going to pram and my mom was scrambling to find a gown for me because there was nothing in the stores and she wanted her daughter to have the best but she was unable to deliver. And this is a woman who spent her life building, you know, the bright future of communism, who was very enthusiastic about the changes and who found herself scrambling to make the best out of this change. So political transformation is very important, but that's not all. And if I can give one example, in 2009, on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, Uh, The Pew Research Institute did this survey. And actually, the title, if you wish, of the survey, um, sort of like overview, really shows you the ambiguity of change. The title reads like this, end of communism cheered, but now with more reservations. And there was the stunning question there. Uh, People were asked, are you better off or worse off than under communism? 72% of Hungarians answered that they're worse off than under communism. Stunning, uh, 62% of all Bulgarians answered the same. 62% of Ukrainians answer that. So what do you make of political change, right? And that's why we have so much actually nostalgia to communism that has developed in much of the area. And we cannot explain this, but with the clumsy, irresponsible way the political transition was handled and the complete lack of attention given to more uh, mundane questions, such as how do ordinary people cope with profound political transformation?
2: Well and I think we we saw the Cold War as a political issue, but in many ways it was an economic issue. And I just want to say that what Theodore was just describing is what I'm talking about, this deficit, this what seemed to us in nineteen eighty nine like this momentary glitch in the retail distribution uh, turned out to be a much more serious and almost a a metaphor for the entire political and economic system that everything was in deficit, everything had been tied together economically deliberately, um, and when that system started to fall apart people 's lives became very difficult um, and you know it 's one thing to not uh, be able to vote or to go and vote uh, and um, try to forward, you know, democracy. You know, for years uh, people had to go and vote and they did vote and it meant nothing. And what really meant something was whether or not there was bread in the store, whether or not mm. there was milk in the store. And those uh, details of people's lives are are highly important. And they they were they were very difficult in those years and they continue to be very difficult. That's part of my point is that here we are 25 years later uh, and there's still not milk in many post Soviet stores.
4: I was thinking about Bulgaria and, and the whole integrated uh, economic system. Uh, and I was in in the Soviet Union in 1990 after this had happened and staying in a hotel where there were no lights anywhere to be found. And the explanation was that the light bulbs had been made in Bulgaria. And now that Bulgaria had disappeared, there were no more light bulbs. And so we, we spent uh, a fair amount of time in the dark wandering around uh, because of 89. and And, uh, and that kind of it's just one small example of that—the uh, extraordinary interconnectedness of it all—and then the, the the daily life, kind of material problems that you face. Uh, the question you asked, though, really hits on the really Im- important thing that I think we all have to walk away from after any revolution: is that, to a certain degree revolutions are wonderful, and they make change, and they're exciting. uh, But the real work happens afterwards. And the real work happens afterwards over a long period of time, decades, generations, uh, perhaps even centuries, uh, and that it takes hard work, uh, and it takes sacrifice, and it takes attention to detail uh, to make these sorts of things happen. And so that ultimately, we're still living through the transition, uh, even if it's just 25 years seems like a long time. But in these kinds of transitions, I think it's an enormously short period of time. And it reminds us in some ways, how difficult it is to, to develop uh, participatory or democratic forms of government. It reminds us how difficult it is to, uh, to institute uh, the rule of law uh, and, uh, and legal systems where, where people abide by uh, the laws, more or less, in front of them, uh, or at least that there are clear and uniform consequences if one doesn't abide by those kinds of laws, uh, and just how long it takes to change, to change an, uh, an economic structure. And that has a lot to do with uh, with past economic structures, but also what resources are there, and the population, and all these sorts of things. And I think that there's that sort of sense of perhaps this wasn't what we all signed up for with the revolution. That the revolution was supposed to be something perhaps a little bit more gallant and romantic and, and fundamentally changing. And uh, and so I think part of the part of the statistics you you, you cite, Theodora, but, you know, part, part of that reflects that sort of sense of well, not having achieved what we hoped we would achieve and and, uh, and perhaps unreasonable expectations of what the reality is all about.
3: Nick uh, had this enthusiastic statement that revolutions are wonderful. And I have to disagree. (laughs) Having lived through a revolution during my most formative years... I would not recommend revolutions <laughs> as a means for political change. I actually have become a huge skeptic. And even historically mm. speaking, I'm not sure that I can point you to a successful revolution. So I'm not certain on a personal level, not even professional, professional, you know, opinion here as a historian. But on a personal level, I do not believe in revolutions anymore. So I have become a skeptic as far as the nature, the dynamics, or the um, potential of radical political change. It may very well be better to have incremental change, yes, within a democratic system, yes, within a broad society that participates in the discussion of that change. However, revolutions is not something that I would recommend.
2: Well, it's easier to plan and try to avoid unintended consequences. If you make plans and you see what the consequences are going to be, then those unintended consequences of revolution don't
0: happen. Mm. So the next question we had, I mean, just kind of piggybacks off that a little bit. But we brought up personal recollections and memories earlier. And now looking at revolution, what it means for the state, we're kind of curious how these former Soviet bloc countries dealt with their national memories. And it appears that Germany, for example, has confronted its history in several ways, such as the DDR Museum in Berlin. But what about other countries? And do they just let sleeping dogs lie and get on with the future? Well, I've been
2: waiting for a long time for reparations for gulag victims. It was fascinating to be in Berlin a couple of years ago talking with somebody about uh, the the German reparations program, and this historian had tracked down a lot of Ukrainian slave workers who'd worked in Berlin in factories and had found them in their villages and had managed to prove that they were the people that he found in the file cabinet and was dispersing government reparations. And I was thinking the entire Soviet system, the entire Soviet Union, the entire Soviet economy, infrastructure was built by slave labor? And when are those conversations going to happen about reparations?
4: Well, it seems to me that uh, there's, a, there's an important difference in terms of memory between those states that were in the Eastern Bloc, in the part of Eastern Europe, and those, and those republics that were within the Soviet Union and that have now broken away, uh, in part because the 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 events of 89 and after were not just a change of politics and economy, but we're also kind of throwing off of of the Russian yoke, uh, or the Soviet yoke. Uh, And, uh, and so I think that, you know, so so that that sort of sense of freeing oneself and that sort of sense of the system was imposed upon us allows for a different sort of set of memories uh, in Central and Eastern Europe than what we see in the Soviet Union. Now, there are parts of the Soviet Union, like the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia uh, in particular, but also uh, in the in the south with Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and other areas where they also feel this sort of sense that the Soviet system was imposed upon them uh, and that they can make a break from that system in some ways a little bit more easily because they have this, this sense that, well, it wasn't us that did it per se, but it was from outside that was pushed upon us. Uh, but other parts of, of, of the former Soviet Union, particularly the, the Russian Federation itself, They're caught in some ways holding the bag a great deal more uh, in uh, in this regard, and and so it strikes me that it's almost harder, you know, in in places like Russia to be able to deal with this because it's it it was us, it was us who did this. Uh, In some ways, much like the uh, uh, you know Germans dealing with the Nazi past, you know, it it was them. You can't avoid it, and so it strikes me that it's partly that reason that we have the you know the differences in terms of the difficulties within Russia of dealing with the past and the way in which. They haven't really dealt with it, uh, or at least the way they've dealt with it is perhaps not how I would have hoped they would have done in the sense that to a certain degree, they haven't broken with it. They've embraced a lot of aspects of it, particularly, I mean, Stalin still has some place, the Second World War and its great triumphs of the Soviet system, the cultural uh, accomplishments of the Soviet period. Uh, I mean, a lot of different things remain a part of who uh, Russians think they are. So to a certain degree, I think they haven't dealt with it in quite the same way that, uh, that many of these other, uh, these other states have.
3: So the issue of memory is fascinating. And I think that if you look at the different projects um, that are out there in the region of Eastern Europe, you will really see actually the potential of a democratic system that allows diverse voices to to be, you know, sunk at the same uh, time. There's a lot of emphasis, obviously, on political violence. Uh, and that is... Um, To be expected, many of the memory projects come from the right and the right focuses on the issue of political violence. They want to remind us of the gulag system. They want to remind us of the secret police. They want to remind us of Stasi and the House of Terror in Budapest uh, and all that. So you have that. But you also have a lot of other grassroots projects. You have actually a lot of um, people associated with the new political left, the new generation of the political left, who have been commemorating other things there are uh, all sorts of like virtual museums of socialism that really show that you know mean there are aspects of the socialist system that uh, work quite uh, well developed uh, under state socialism uh, things such as you know the welfare system, education the arts and culture they all thrived uh, under uh, state socialism and we need to remember, if we're going to remember political violence we have to remember the other side of the system as well. So it's, there's a lot of ambiguity there, what should be remembered and then you also have in certain cases uh, things such as well in Bulgaria, in Sofia in downtown you still have the monument of the Soviet army standing uh, in, in, the sen- in the city center, one of the few, but it's there. Yet what happens is that every time there's political tension, there's political protest. Young artists go and, you know, they draw their graffiti on the monument Uh, with the Ukraine crisis. They colored the figures of the Soviet liberating army in the colors of the Ukrainian national flag. Um, When we were commemorating the Prague Spring, they colored the monument pink, referring to the pink tank of uh, of Prague. Um, I mean, so there's a lot of like street art as well, grassroots street art that is going against some uh, of these memory project. So there are a lot of different voices. And I think this is ultimately refreshing. Hmm.
4: It's good to add to, I think one of the the other things about memory is the way in which it it really breaks across generation, that there are those who existed in the system, and those who were born afterwards. And so those, uh, those who were born afterwards, to a certain degree, you know, their their memory of it is in the way of, I mean, I find my students and how they think about the Cold War, it seems like this peculiar little strange event that they don't quite understand, because, you know, it hasn't existed in their lifetime. And I think that there is that that big difference where people in Eastern Europe who were born after uh, after 89 grew up in a completely different world and don't necessarily have any associations to what came before uh, and only learn about it as, as, uh, as historians. Those who came before lived their lives there. They grew up in that time period. And I think that that's, there's often that sort of sense of nostalgia, just partly because it's a nostalgia for youth, regardless of the political system, that you know, when you're young, life is better in some ways. Uh, the movies are more uh, more appealing. The music is the best there's ever been. Uh, you know, the air is fresher. And uh, regardless of the political system you're in, that, that, that sort of the, the nostalgia for youth is quite strong. Um, and so that, that, I think there's also that generational difference as well.
2: The only thing I would add to that is that if we think about 1989 as in some ways the last battle of World War II, and I think there's a, there's a good reason to think of it that way, um... World War II is still being fought in the former Soviet Union. I was in a Crimean elementary school, uh, and I was treated to their museum, uh, where they were talking about the Niemetska fascist, you know, the aggressors of the of the German fascists who were still who had stolen our our grandparents' childhood, and they were inculcating these ideas into the elementary school children. So then you wonder, what is? Yes, you don't have that personal memory, but is what you're taught in some ways, even stronger than what your grandparents experienced, because it's less diluted.
3: And that's a fascinating point, because there was just a study actually done in Bulgaria um, uh, over the content of history textbooks. Uh, And they did a survey of, you know, what kids knew um, about the communist period. And um, it's not even funny, but I will still give you an example that sort of like shows you how shockingly misinformed the new generation is, because basically in Bulgaria, the history of communism is not in the textbooks yet. It's too politically sensitive. So kids don't study the history of communism. So they asked high school students what they associate the term Gulag with. Stunning 17% answered that that was an internet search
4: engine. (laughs) <laughs> oh. go. like
2: google like yahoo sounds
4: exactly like it. Yeah, absolutely gulag.com gulag.com huh? the new internet startup <laughs> um, so
1: famously or infamously um, few saw these events coming and so in retrospect have we learned better how to look for signs of radical political change especially given recently the events to take an example in hong kong and in that same vein what should we take away from the year 1989 in today's world as we uh, wrap up here with our final question
2: Nobody saw it coming, and I don't think we've learned anything. We still don't see things coming, right? The CIA chief famously in in Berlin didn't know that the wall was coming down, and the CIA has not been predicting the things that have been happening lately either.
3: I don't think – I mean, I think it's refreshing not to always know when change is coming.
2: Right, I mean,
3: everyone needs a little bit surprise uh, in their lives, and, you know – It's good when you wake up in the morning and you see that, you know, a popular movement has developed overnight. Uh, There's something to be said about it. We all need a charge once in a while. I mean, yes, I agree. Hopefully no one is going to shoot at anyone in these processes. That has to be the most important thing, uh, which is one of the good lessons of 1989. Mm, Uh, But, I mean, I don't know that we can or that we should... Predict anything because, as a historian, I think that just unintended consequences is something that is so important that no one can possibly pin down.
4: I agree, Angela, that uh, I, I don't think we've learned very much. Uh, we don't necessarily see things coming, but that's also the case that I think it's hard to. I mean, oh, absolutely. I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not blaming yeah. anyone. I well, <laughs> like to blame some people, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I'm not sure what we've learned, but I do. I mean, in the sense of being able to predict when things are about to happen. Uh, but it is what, it, what what 1989 teaches us is that there are there are ways that we can think about these kinds of events as they're going on in the sense that, you know, we need to be thinking about, uh, you know, what are the crowds doing and will the will the people in power respond and how will they respond uh, with violence or not? Uh, and so when we look at, you know, the Arab Spring or. Uh, you know what happened in uh, in Ukraine in the spring and the Maidan and this sort of thing. Those are the questions. You know what is bringing people to the street and how. You know and, and what is the response of the uh, of uh, of the of the people in power and that those two factors are really going to help us to understand the direction of movements. I think the second thing we learn really clearly is the way and and to to, to piggyback on what uh, Theodora said. You know we have to be as as romantic and fabulous as revolutions are and I got swept away before uh, and and it's partly like I got swept away because this is what I. What I remember from my from my very young days uh, of uh, of uh, of this extraordinary sense of possibility of this event, but that we have to be we always have to be wary of revolutions. That uh, that there's a moment of great uh, of great joy and euphoria and possibility, but then the hard work comes, uh, and that uh, exactly how this is what this is all going to mean and how it's all going to play out. Uh, happens in the years and decades and generations that, uh, that come afterwards. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's a lesson we really have to pay attention to as there are strivings political, for political change in, in other parts of the world today that it's not, the, it's not the moment of the revolution that's really crucial, that if we really want to help, uh, then we have to go in, and we have to go in for a long time to, uh, you know, to really institute the kind of uh, enduring and embedded change we might want.
0: Well, we'll conclude it there. And a big thank you to Angela, Nick, and Theodora for joining us today on History Talk. Thank you. Thank you so thank you. much.
1: This edition of the Origins podcast, History Talk, was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breivogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Leticia Wiggins. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.